0: Welcome to the Unique Garden Show, hosted by Mike Branning, owner of the Unique Garden Center. Join us each week right here as Mike discusses gardening topics and takes your calls and questions. Our call-in number is 366-8471. Now, here's your host, Mike Branning. Good morning.
1: Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Okay. It's
0: going to be a nice weekend coming up.
1: Heck yes. I'm That's so That's cool because we had
0: some really cold days this week.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: We some really cold days. I saw
1: my breath, even in my house. <laughs> right? Yeah. Hey, for just a reminder, for any of you who would like to call and ask a gardening question, you can call at 760-366-8471. Okay. Okay. Uh,
0: a couple of things we're going to talk about today is uh, one, with. The cold weather that we've been having, hopefully not too many people were affected by that as far as the irrigation system freezing. Um, (laughs) I know we had a job we were working on yesterday where one of the valves froze. And, um, And, you know, it's amazing how many projects get put in. And they get put in, I mean, they actually paid either a gardener or or a contractor or whatever, a landscaper, to put the system in, and they don't put in a separation valve between the house water and the irrigation system. Mm. And it's like, you know, I mean, it's amazing how many times I come across this. And uh, even if we're going out and doing, you know, uh, either uh, an extension or repair or whatever, and um, I have to turn off the – the meter and turn off their house water because they don't have a a isolation valve you know separating the two and i just don't understand why people wouldn't do that especially when you're in the trade and you don't do that because i mean a ball valve is only going to cost you like five bucks Hmm. and you know whenever a valve if you have an irrigation issue it never comes at a good time (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and so then you have to turn off the main, and then you don't have any water. And if it ends up you know, being really cold weather, sometimes you can't make the repair until the weather warms up, mm. um, and you're just out of luck. And so definitely, for those who are listening, if you do have a watering system and you don't have an isolation valve, and you can either put in one, and that'll turn off the entire system, or oftentimes what we do is we'll put in a valve, a, a ball valve, just shut the water down, and we'll do that at every valve location. So that way, if a one valve goes bad, rather than turning off the entire system, you can turn that one valve off and still have the rest of the valves operational. Mm, wow. That way you don't have to be under the gun to get things going and repaired so quickly because you're only isolating that one valve. Yeah. Uh, but even if you only put in one valve, uh, I would definitely recommend doing that and because uh, it's so simple to, to do, and, um, and you'd be way ahead of the game if anything ever does happen, and you need to turn the system off for a while. And, and then, you know, I used to always put in a, a brass ball valve, hmm. um, and the brass ball valve itself will last you a lifetime. Oh. <coughs> Pardon me. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is a lot of times, if you don't turn off um, valves very often, and you, even though you have it in a container in the ground, a lot of times... Dirt will fill the container. Mm. And so even though the brass ball valve will last a lifetime, the handles are made out of metal that rust. So a lot of times you go out there to turn the water off and the handle over the years has rusted and you go to turn the water off and the handle just breaks off in your hand. And so definitely, you know, if you put in a PVC ball valve, then one, especially now, because brass has gotten so expensive, um, it's way cheaper to put in a, a PVC ball valve, hmm. and um, and you're not gonna have that problem with the handles breaking off. So, food for thought there.
1: Wow, and just as durable to the PVC they are. for a long wow. Yeah, they are cool and cheaper. Heck yeah, I'm down.
0: <laughs> right. So, yeah. So I wanted to mention that because, like I said. We did this one repair yesterday, and, and um, and you know, it ended up going into the early evening hours before the water could get turned on because it was a cool day toward the end of the day uh, when we got called out there. And it just takes time for the glue to dry, so the people that were there were inconvenienced, you know, and they didn't have any water mm-hmm. uh, until they could turn the system back on again. So... Anyway, I wanted to mention that just because there's so many people out there that don't have a separation valve between irrigation and the house water. And speaking of water, um, you know, there's ways that you can – and we've talked about this, I don't know, it's been a few months ago. Um, But, you know, everybody is, you know – not liking the new water rates going up. And water is never going to be go get any cheaper. That's a given. And there are things that you can do in your home um, that you can save a lot of water and use that water, you know, for your landscape or potted plants or things like that. And one of them is, say, in the... if you're going to take a shower, um, naturally people will turn the water on and it's cold. So they let the water run down the drain until the hot water comes up. And depending upon the time of year and how cold it is, you can sometimes get close to five gallons of water before the water actually starts heating up. And we have a caller coming in? Yes, we okay. do. We'll we... Con- to be continued.
1: Okay, okay. Looks like we may have lost him. Okay, call back, Daniel, and we will get right to your question.
0: Okay. And uh, and so that, you know, uh, anywhere from three to four-plus gallons of water can easily be used uh, to water plants in the yard or potted plants or whatever. Um, and all you got to do is have a five-gallon bucket that you put the water in, and then when it starts to heat up, then take the bucket out set it on the side— and then when you're all done, you can take it outside and water a few plants, and that's what. And so, if you have just yourself, that's one thing. But if you have a family, um, and throughout the you know the the day or whatever, then you could actually be looking at quite a bit of water being used. And then another thing too is uh, even in the kitchen, if you're going to say wash dishes or whatever, and the water's cold, people will let the water run down the sink until it gets hot. And the very same thing, you can put that water into, a you know, a couple of pitchers and water house plants, water plants out in the yard. And that's all water that is not just going down the drain into the tank. And even though we're not talking tons of water, but it's still just being responsible and making the best use of your water. And if you really want to get creative, you know, I don't really understand why, <clears throat> the state of California when it comes to building new homes, why they don't automatically plumb the house for gray water. Because it's so easy to do when the house is being built and it's not as easy to do once the house is built because the plumbing is always under the slab. Um, and so people that are having a home built, if they were to have a gray water system and have the house plumbed for gray water, then you can put in, again, ball valves that you can turn off and direct water here and there. So anyway, um, another way that you can uh, save water is when you are washing your clothes, uh, you have a lot of water going through your washing machine. And if you use a biodegradable or organic soap, and then you have the rinse water, uh, automatically you have a pipe that... the. um, exhaust water goes out of and that goes into your tank but you can take that water and have it go into a, a inch and a quarter piece of pvc and then run it out the back and you can take the, all that water and that can go toward watering trees or shrubs or whatever and that's a substantial amount of water there especially if you have a family and you do a couple of loads you know a week um, or more then that's all water that would just be going into your tank that you can use towards your landscape. And there's a lot of things you can use as far as uh, saving water and redirecting that water into rather than just going down in the tank and being lost to where you can put it into your irrigation system. And that way it's being utilized and it's going to save you money from having to go out there and hand water your plants during the week with a water hose or whatever. And it just makes good use of your water. And so, especially like I said, you know the the water in the morning. I know even myself, if I have something that I'm soaking because I didn't wash you know wash it that night, and then you have to put water in and let it kind of soften up. Then uh, rather than dumping that water down the sink, you can take that water and in that dish, and then take it outside and again water a potted plant, water a plant in the yard and, uh, and once you get into the routine it just becomes pretty basic and you just automatically do it <coughs> and uh, if you really stop to think about how much water you're using during the course of the week then you'd be amazed at um, how much water you're saving and you're not having to pay it out to the water company.
1: Yes, okay. Now, we have two callers, and this is funny. They go by both the name of Daniels. We'll start with the first, Daniel. All right, first, Daniel. Hello, you're on air with Mike.
2: Hi. You Hi, hear? Daniel. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, that's great. So I just have like a quick question. Why is irrigation such a big topic on the breakfast if there's absolutely
0: no grass inside? Naturally, you know, lawns take a lot of water, but even a uh, typical landscape can take, you know, quite a bit of water. And so how you water can make a big difference on the amount of water that that landscape takes. So if you have spray heads or bubblers, then you're going to be using substantially more water. If you have a drip irrigation system, the principle behind drip irrigation is you water longer and deeper and less often. So... You know, again, you know, there's ways that you can save water and be more accountable. Because a lot of people will put in, even, uh, it's really common, people will put in drip irrigation. And they'll put the emitter on top of the ground. And that goes against the principles of drip irrigation because you're dispensing a gallon or two on top of the ground. And so you're encouraging the risk to be shallow. Whereas if you put in a three to four inch uh, deep water sleeve pipe and you water below the ground, then you're making the roots go down deeper. So the deeper the roots go, the cooler the ground is and you have less water use and you have no evaporative loss on top of the ground. And so you're encouraging deep roots. You can use less water rather than watering on top of the ground and you're going to be applying the principles of drip irrigation the way they should be. Uh, and sadly, you know, a lot of irrigation that's being put in and drip irrigation is all basically put on top of the ground, um, which is not efficient as, when it comes to water.
1: Yes, okay. And we are going to go ahead and go to the next caller. Okay. Second, Daniel, hello, you are on
2: air with Mike. Oh, hello. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Hi, how are you doing today? I have, I'm doing well, doing well uh i have a question about invasive plants we're out on the mesa and around some of the plantings we have prickly pear eucalyptus we've had uh, green plants with yellow flowers that grow up and now it's kind of spread on the kind of the desert opening ground that we have here we have two and a half acres and I've been told, I, I attempt to leave it because it controls erosion, but I've been told it's very invasive. According to my app on my phone, it's, it's London Rocket. It's like a mustard plant. Correct. Is this something you th- I should uh, pull up? And if so, is there something that I can put in its place that will help control the erosion?
0: Yeah, if you have mustard, it's not a native weed, but it's really uh, taking over. And not only uh, does it grow substantially in a given area, uh, but when it dries, it can also become a fire hazard because when it dries in the late spring, early summer, then it's substantial in size to where it's all browned out and you have to either, you know, be on top okay. of it as far as, you know, taking it out or possibly running the risk of a fire hazard. Um now okay. as far as things that you can plant that will hold the soil. Um, there's a couple. I mean, one, if you want to go native, you can do the desert buckwheat, and that does okay. very well out here. Well, one is native to begin with. Right. Um, and usually when you see them in the wild, they look kind of rough and scruffy because they haven't been getting a lot of water the last couple years. Uh, so okay. they're, they're looking kind of stressed. But if they get... Uh, not a ton of water, but if they are given some routine watering, then what you see in the wild and what you see in your yard would be night and day. And it's a good looking plant. And it'll get kind of a uh, whitish pink blossom. And then the seed pod would be kind of a a rusty brown color. (coughs) And that does very well. And of course, you know, rosemary has always been a, a common ground cover up here. And uh, okay. it does very well. And again, it's drought tolerant. Not as drought tolerant as the desert buckwheat, but it is still considered to be drought tolerant, though. And it blooms twice a okay. year in spring and fall. And so, yeah. when it does bloom, then it's definitely a good food source for the bees.
2: Okay. All right. Very good. That those those are two options. We have planted some rosemary, but it hasn't seemed to be doing very well. Does it require full sun? Like
0: uh, To do it? well, it has to have at least half-day sun. It has less okay. than half-day. It'll struggle and not really be as full as it should be. Okay. And how long okay. ago did you plant it?
2: Um, it's been probably, it was like last uh, spring, summer.
0: Yeah. Okay. Because, again, you're not going to get a lot of growth during the wintertime. So in about yeah. another month. It'll start putting new growth on. Um, okay. So is it about how many hours of sun does that location get?
2: Um, yeah, it's kind of right now. It gets a lot, but it's kind of uh, sideways from a, a fruitless mulberry. So when that thing comes out, it's really shaded. It shades it a lot.
0: Then, you know, the, exactly. yeah, when it leaves out, then you have the 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 shadow cast from the tree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and so that'll definitely have a bearing on. Now, the desert buckwheat would not do well in that location. Um, okay. If it's too shady, there's another ground cover called uh, vinca. And that stays very low to the ground, and it'll get kind of a purplish-blue flower, and it handles the cold, okay. and uh, that, okay. that'll definitely take the shade better than the rosemary or the buckwheat for sure.
2: Okay. Very good. Can I ask one more a kind of unrelated question? It's about Palo Verdes. When's the best time to plant the seedling for those?
0: Okay. You know, they're cold-tolerant when they're established, but because of the cold that we've been having here lately, I would wait yeah. to plant one until, you know, at the earliest, mid-March, or going into, okay. you know, first part of April. And from that point on, okay. then you would have no problem at all. And then by it being put in then— It'll have the remainder of spring, summer, and fall to get rooted in. And so when it gets cold again next winter, then it will be acclimated and it can handle the cold then.
2: Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for the info and thanks for taking my call. Appreciate You bet.
0: It. You have a great day.
2: Thank you. You
0: All right. So that basically, you know, sums it up on using gray water. And again, you'd be amazed at how much water you'd be saving by utilizing that because either way you're paying for the water whether it comes out and you save it and put it in a pitcher or a bucket and take it out to the plant or water the plant directly either way you're paying for the water
1: wow oh my goodness so many different ways to save water and easy too actually oh yeah
0: really easy. like i said i mean as an example this morning because it was kind of a cold night i had basically three gallons of water in a five gallon bucket so that way, rather than the water just going down the down into the tank, mm-hmm. it's in the bucket. And then I took it out in the front yard and watered a couple of potted plants, and they're happy. And yeah, and I know I'm doing the right thing, and it, it's all good. The next thing on the list today was uh, we're getting at that time of year where if you haven't pruned your roses yet, you want to definitely prune them before we get into the springtime. And roses actually respond. To a heavy pruning.
1: Ooh, okay.
0: <clears throat> a lot of people are hesitant to cut back their roses, and they tend to just kind of cut back the tops and leave the whole bush basically yeah. there. Yeah. Because they're afraid to, you know, hurt them or cut them back too hard. But uh, but they actually do respond to heavy pruning. So ideally, you want to yeah. cut them back to three to five canes. And from the base of the plant where the graft is, <clears throat> you want to uh, cut them anywhere from 18 to 24 inches from the ground up. So if you've got a well established rose bush, then you could be cutting back, you know, easily half or more than half of the plant to get it down to that size. Ooh, wow. um, but now, the one thing I do want to emphasize is if you were the kind of pruner where you didn't do a lot of pruning, but now you want to do the right thing. If the wood is really old, then you're going to have a lot of buds that have died off. So if you cut it down the way it's supposed to be, but the wood is really old and it doesn't have any viable buds, then you could actually lose that entire branch. Mm. So if you have a really old gnarly branch that, uh, doesn't have any viable buds showing then go ahead and cut it down to where you do see some viable buds and then let that go this year and then by doing that then this year as the plant grows it will redevelop new buds down lower and then you can go ahead and cut it back further next year So, you know, a lot of times you can't take care of it all in one fell swoop Mm -hmm. as far as doing it the right way compared to what it was being done because as time goes on, those canes get older and they lose the viable uh, buds. Mm -hmm. And with that said, if you have a, a really old cane and then you have a new cane coming up along in the area around it, then just like people, you know, when you get old, you retire Mm-hmm. And so if you have a new cane coming on, that can replace the plant, because that's how you basically renew the plant, mm. is if you have a new cane coming up in the area of an old cane, and that old cane is looking pretty old and gnarly, then go ahead and cut that old cane out, let the new cane take over, and that way you renew the rose bush. then, because roses will go on for years and years and years, but you do have to replace the canes every few years, and... So whenever you do have a new cane developing, then take advantage of that cane and get rid of the old cane, let the new cane take over. And then when you do cut the branch, always make sure that you cut it at a bud that is pointing away from the bush. Because when you cut it back to, that's gonna be the dominant bud that's gonna be breaking out. And if you cut it at a bud growing, that's facing the inside of the bush, then that is going to create a lot of cross branching because that branch is going to grow toward the middle of the bush rather than growing out and away from the bush. So, definitely, you, when you do cut it back, always cut it at a bud that is pointing away from the middle of the bush. Hmm. And that way, you have a better balanced, more rounded rose bush.
1: Yeah. It makes so much sense. I would have never thought of that, though.
0: You know, and then after you get the basic framework down uh, and you've chosen between three to five canes, then you can go ahead and um, thin it out and you're not going to cut it back to where you're going to have just, you know, three to five naked canes. You're going to have some uh, wood coming off of those canes, uh, but... Overall, the plant will be cut down to roughly about two feet. And then all the other side would just kind of thin it out to where the, the rose bush is balanced out. And then once spring rolls around, it'll bounce back and do really well. If you don't cut a rose bush back heavy, then what can happen is because the plant is trying to maintain all this bush, that can actually cut down on the, the quality of the flower as far as the size. And also the number of blooms, because a lot of the plant energy, instead of going into a bloom, is going into maintaining all this plant that should have been cut back. And so you're going to have a, a better showing of roses and a better quality rose by cutting it back, you know, roughly 18 inches to 2 feet. Now, if you have a, a grandiflora rose, a grandiflora, they get large, like the Queen Elizabeth, minus Touch, or a couple of varieties, mm-hmm. and they're going to grow <clears throat> between six and eight feet. Mm-hmm. So those, you cut down to around three feet. So you're not going to go quite as low on those if it's mm-hmm. a grandiflora. And, um, but as far as the hybrid teas and the floribundas, then definitely anywhere from 18 inches to uh, 24 inches from the base. Mm-hmm. And then you would be in good shape. Wow. <laughs> and that's your rose pruning class for today.
1: Yes. Wow, there's so much for today on that one.
0: (laughs) So, but yeah, roses, you know, and there again, uh, roses do really well out here. And if they're properly watered, then they don't take a whole lot of water. So if you have a good mulching program, you've incorporated a lot of mulching in the soil. And when you do water them, you deep water them. And you can get by and water your rose bush in the heat of summer once a week. No problem at all. And so they're not going to be a really heavy, water-demanding plant. Wow. Um, but now if you have a planted in the typical desert dirt with no mulch, then they're going to require more water than that because they're not going to have a very deep root system. Mm. They're not going to um, have the organic matter in the soil to retain moisture. So you're going to be watering more often. But if you do get on a good mulching program and you do deep water them, then easily once a week would be more than enough for a rose bush, so as um, much as they give out and and plus you know roses kind of dog out from late spring through summer because of the heat. But if they have deep roots and they're cooler and happier, then they'll bloom more during the summer than they will uh, if they're shallow rooted.
1: Hmm. Oh my goodness, well, thank you so much for another you amazing bet. show. Have Have a great day. Yeah, you too. See you again next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the Unique Garden Show, hosted by Mike Branning of Unique Garden Center. Join us again next week at the same time, 8.30 to 9 a.m. with your questions and calls, right here on Z1077. For more information, call Mike at 365-1511.